Welcome to A State of Mind, a podcast where ancient wisdom meets our crazy modern world. This is Julian Royce. Hello there. It has been a little while. I'm recording this on July 19th. So I've taken a few weeks break from the podcast. Um, over the last year, I've put out 50 episodes of this podcast. and just had some amazing conversations with some really great people, some solo episodes as well. And it's been a real journey and a learning process. And I wanted to take some time to kind of reflect on the last year and gather my energy and remember my intentions and my inspiration for doing this. And so I'm going to launch what I'm going to call season two of the podcast. It'll go for the next nine months or so. And I have a series of upcoming episodes on psychedelic assisted therapies. Really looking forward to those. Um, I've got some great therapists and psychologists coming on. And I've got some other plans after that. So. I'm excited to keep going here at A State of Mind. Um, I've switched my hosting provider. So if you have been subscribed to the podcast, go to your podcast listening app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. Click the subscribe button again. Thanks. And today I'm speaking with my friend Andrew Forbes. Andrew is a musician. Uh, in the background now I have some of his music. He is a bagpipe player. He actually plays a bunch of other instruments as well but he's been called one of the best bagpipe players in the world. He's lived in New York City for a number of years in Brooklyn, uh, played with some of the best musicians there, been a big part of the Celtic music scene. He has toured around the country. He has been featured on PBS, uh, contributed music to Rockstar video games, among other things. And I actually met Andrew at a meditation retreat at the Shambhala Mountain Center. I believe it was in the winter of 2008. Um, it's up high in the Rocky Mountains, you know, covered in snow. It's a beautiful place. And uh, he is, Andrew's coming out with a book called Mindful Rhythm, which brings together meditation and meditation practices and music and performing music, specifically rhythm. I actually got to do some of these practices with him, and they, it was really surprising to me. They were very effective. Um, he has a way of getting in touch with the spaciousness of mind, and then from that place, engaging in music, playing music, feeling the rhythm. And it was really cool to experience that. So I'd recommend checking that out. Uh, for me, there was a quality of effortlessness that came in that was really cool to experience. Um, and so, without further ado, I bring you Andrew Forbes. today with Andrew Forbes. Andrew, thanks for being on the podcast. Hi, Julian. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And let's see, I know you from Naropa University. We were both students there. 
I was just remembering the first time we met was actually at um, a meditation retreat up at Shambhala Menon Center a long time ago. God, it's been like 12, 11 years ago, something like that. Yeah, I think it was a Nindra retreat. Yeah, that's right. How but, did uh, you how did you come to this point in your life? And you've been a meditator for a long time, right? And since I was a child, hmm. I came to this point particularly because I always have been looking for some way to bring together music and meditation. A lot of people they say that their meditation is music. And that can be a little ambiguous, but uh, this time it came together in a really powerful way. Hmm. Totally. Yeah, they, there are two things that like clearly seems like there's a lot of connection there to be made, but I haven't seen many people really making that connection explicit and talking about it um, in the way that you do. Um, it's really a natural thing. It's hmm. very organic which is why musicians don't often talk about it. Basically, the activity of performing and playing music and even writing music is a display of the mind's brilliance and depth, the way that music can be expressed through the mind, through the body, into reality is a really a very pr profound demonstration that touches into a lot of esoteric Buddhist philosophy, mm. uh, particularly the philosophy of the three kayas. Um, mm. However, because for musicians it's so ordinary, it's rarely talked about in such ways. Yeah, well, that makes sense to me um, to some degree because like meditation is this like paradox of like it can be you put effort into it and it's a it's definitely a discipline but the kind of goal at least in the you know tibetan buddhism mahayana buddhism that i've studied and practiced and i know you have too it's like the goal is like to be fully human to be be what you already are rather than to become something other than what you are and so it has this like ordinary quality as well that i think you're speaking to yeah like always say that the goal of Buddhist practice is to wind up in the place where you started or something. <laughs> yeah. I think there, there's some saying like wind up in the place where you started and see it for the first time. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, Which is very much the same with music. Uh, people play music. Musicians play their entire lives. It's a journey that begins with very rudimentary training, very basic understanding, learning scales, learning chords, learning music theory, learning just how to play an instrument and how to have confidence. And that can take years, just getting to the point of actually being able to carry a tune or to play in tune as a piper, you know, you, you have to learn how to play the chanter before you learn how to play the bagpipe. And then you actually have to learn how to play it in tune. And then you have to learn how to play it well, you know, to right. have a flow and a sense of command. And that can take an entire lifetime. 
I know a lot of musicians that have been playing an entire lifetime and they're still working on just playing it in tune. Hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. It's kind of humbling <laughs> to think about that. <clears throat> um, for me, it's just that, uh, I embrace that path with a particular ver- uh, veracity, a tenacity that allowed me to engage it much like I would say a, a blues rock guitarist or something like that when I was a child. Mm. And then when <clears throat> people uh, started paying me for it, that's when I really started to engage in a way to uh, to perfect my technique and perfect my ability. Mm. You know, I hear a lot of anecdotes from a lot of rock stars, you know, that, you know, from Jerry Garcia, he would say that uh, every time he played after a certain point, he was playing as if his life depended on it. Or I hear this <laughs> great anecdote that uh, um, every time you play, you play, your goal is to play better than the last time you played. Even if the last time you played mm. may have been the best time you ever played, you know, kind of that kind of attitude. Yeah. Like aging with the music path. Like always searching to do better, to improve, to be more present with it. I like that. That's inspiring. And that eventually, that kind of attitude led me to a state of relaxation. Mm. And I really discovered that when I was playing a lot in New York City as a professional musician with the the Irish and Scottish session scene out there. Mm. Because really very living tradition that hosted some of the best musicians in the world. And I got to hear firsthand what that kind of command really feels like, what it really sounds like. And then I was able to examine myself and my own playing and my own attitude towards playing. And then I got to compare myself to them. And it really took a long time for me to feel like I could actually uh, come up and play at their level. Yeah. So like living in New York City, playing at some of these places was like a real formative experience for you. Like it was challenging, but also a learning process. Sounds like. Yeah. That's cool. And then it really really changes things when you get paid for something. That was something else you said that I kind of noticed. Like when you start getting paid to do something, to perform, to show up, it's a certain um, energy exchange and seriousness and engagement that I feel like can happen. It does lend itself to command the discipline to bring it to a professional level. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. However, you don't have to be a professional musician to really understand what I'm trying to talk about when I start discussing the principles of mindful rhythm. Hmm. Or in this case, what I'm calling the mindfulness of rhythm which is something I really discovered after being in New York for so long And then I went out on this kind of adventure. I had to travel across the country and have all sorts of mystical experiences until I finally landed in San Francisco, where through a series of of rather extraordinary circumstances, 
I discovered this source of power within me that direct that was directly related to the command of rhythm. Now, as a Celtic musician, rhythm often isn't really emphasized, except for say accompanying guitars and bodhran and uh, you know certain rhythmic instruments. Because as pipers, it's kind of like the first challenge is to actually play the melody and play it all the way. Through. And a lot of yeah. people don't think that rhythm should be particularly emphasized. But what I discovered in this particular moment was that rhythm is the essence of music. And if you don't have rhythm, then what you're playing does not communicate the depth of power that music really has. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, and I really appreciate that part of your book, like emphasizing the importance of rhythm. And that's something I've realized to some degree in my own life. Like I play guitar and, you know, going to see different music groups, like rhythm really is the driving force that gets people moving, I feel like. And I mean, I think there's a lot of elements there, like you talk about in your book that are all important, but rhythm feels foundational. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'd be playing my pipes and you know, people love the bagpipes or they hate them, you know, either way, but um, <laughs> they'd, they'd be fascinated with the fact that I would be playing pipes and then I would engage this method, which is really about relaxing and entering the flow. And mm. then everybody just starts dancing, almost like they can't even help it, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Well, the bagpipe's such an unusual instrument too, and you, like you said, it's it's not necessarily very rhythmic, like the way it's normally played or thought of, because it's like you're holding out these long notes. It's very atmospheric, I would say. Um, and then one thing I discovered while practicing this method, while playing the bagpipes, is that bagpipes themselves are rhythmic. They hmm. are a very instrument especially scottish pipes the way that scottish pipes are played it's bizarre to think of because the chanter and a bagpipe has a continuous sound you know there's no rest there's no pause in the sound or the melody being generated and so mm. as a player i have to synthesize that sense of space and rest with manipulation of the grace notes and this is something that also takes many years to figure out. But what I discovered is with this method and with, you know, a proper command of the instrument and with kind of a mind of meditation, I was able to discover that the bagpipes are a very rhythmic instrument that can be incredibly spacious. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to wind the clock back with you a little bit and hear about your your life and where you came from. I, I know that you grew up in a Buddhist community. Um, yeah. What was what was that like? Were you were you also a musician at a very young age, and were you interested in meditation from a young age, or was it something that you your family was doing and you later got an interest in? Well, the way that the way that my parents were taught was not to 
kind of jam religion down my throat hmm. to allow me to make my own decisions. And when I was nine years old, my friend Amanda Hester came into my grade five class in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and taught us all how to meditate first thing in the morning. And that was really the beginning of that. What, what grade did you say? Grade five. Grade five. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I wish there would be more, you know, mindfulness taught at that age. You know, I wish I had gotten heard about mindfulness at that age. And I've actually gone and taught in middle schools to like seventh and eighth graders, but I think fourth, fifth grade would be perfect. That's, that's beautiful. It was a place called the Shambhala School. It was kind of a special school. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was a, a frontier in terms of um, mindfulness education or combining education and mindfulness. But uh, we didn't really do much meditating other than in the very beginning of the day and the very end of the day for about hmm. five or ten minutes. really wasn't much. Just a little bit, yeah. And when I was seven, that's when I started learning the bagpipes. When I was 12, I, I started studying guitar. Hmm. And when I was 16, that's really when I started figuring out how to play other instruments. Now I play a variety of instruments. Yet the bagpipes and the guitar are really my two main instruments that I play. Hmm. Yes. And then, you, so you're growing up in this, like, Shambhala school, like, mindfulness is being brought in. Was it also encouraging creativity more? Was that a part of it? Sure. I always thought of myself as being an intellectual, academic kind of information guy. I didn't really realize that I was suited to be an artist until I was living in New York in my late 20s. Oh, really? I mean... I always kind of thought of it as secondary and I didn't realize that my own creative mind, which had been cultivated since a young age was actually, um, uh, perfectly situated <clears throat> an artist. Yeah. I feel inspired to think about this connection with meditation and creativity and it might not seem like it on the surface, but I think there's such a deep, connection here i mean they're almost like especially when we talk about like zokchen meditation like the creative play of the universe like the whatever you're experiencing is a kind of creativity and when you're in with your own mind in silence for a period of time you realize how creative your mind is <laughs> all the crazy thoughts all the emotions like you you see it more clearly through that practice and um there's a there's a natural creativity happening you know and that word gets used a lot. I think it's um, a beautiful philosophy and teaching. And the natural world is creative too. Like everything, nature is creative. Like it's not like creativity is something that only belongs to a special group of people called artists and no one else has it. I think it's a human quality. It's the essence of what Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche taught in all of his teaching. I mean, he's... Uh, he was a great Dzogchen teacher and he taught a lot about traditional Buddhism and he created the Shambhala training methods and all these uh, ways of expressing the Dharma. Yet 
his ultimate teaching was how he actually presented it, which is in a world of creativity. It's like he mm. designed all the shrine rooms and he knew that certain environments <clears throat> needed to be created in order for people to really feel and absorb the Dharma when they learned it. And he would dress up in all these different ways and he would use fans and banners and symbolism and all mm. these things create a culture that actually supported what he was teaching. And so that made his particular approach a much more visionary approach. Mm. He worked with, he, he worked with the ways that people speak. He worked with the, uh, the ways people present themselves. He wrote plays. He, he, uh, um, he, he really taught that if you want to change the world, then you have to change the approach to art. And if you want to change the approach to art, you have to change the approach to how people make art. And the way to do that is by teaching Dharma art. Hmm. Because yeah. art in this culture is really embraced by a attitude of you know aggression and salesmanship particularly like all of the art that becomes popular in this society is basically commercial art and that's uh, one of the only ways that art gets noticed around here is if it actually sells something and it's in that selling that it becomes a rather aggressive point of view rather than becoming something much bigger and much more cultural. Yeah, I think that is a fascinating point. And our system, our capitalist system kind of infiltrates everything, you know, so it, it's, it's easy to forget how, how much that affects everything we see and do and create. And, maybe there, you know, there's some good things about, you know, about that, but we, but we lose it's almost like people think about, well, I either do art and music to try to make a living or I do it for its own sake and it's a kind of private thing. But I think you're speaking to something else entirely, which is like you could have a community of people that appreciates art and music they create. Like it's not, it doesn't have to be commercialized and it also doesn't have to be like a side thing you do. You know, it could be part of ritual. It could be part of community. It could be, have connect to bigger things, have more meaning to it. Like it doesn't have to be siloed off. Like this is art and here's everything else. Well, what the original title of Shambhala training level one is the art of being human. Um, and there was this great talk um, <clears throat> of uh, art in everyday life, which is basically that when you embrace the Buddha Dharma with every part of your livelihood, then your life becomes a work of art. That's mm -hmm. really kind of the goal, so to speak, that he was presenting is that if you are embracing practice, then life becomes, your life becomes a work of art. And that, that is what you start working with. And in particular, the, the teachings of, of joining heaven and earth, so to speak, you know, mm. for example, it's like, uh, with the vision of your creativity, that's heaven. And with the actual um, 
reality of your resources and where you are standing and what uh, you can do with that vision, that's the earth. And then actually bringing it together is, mm. is creating that, uh, that human principle. So uh, heaven, earth, human, it's basically just taking a paintbrush and putting it in some ink or some paint and putting it on the canvas when you have a vision of what you want to paint. In the same way, when you're playing music, the vision of music is that music actually happens in your mind and you start hearing it in your mind. With the earth principle, you pick up the instrument, which is made of earth, which is made of things from the earth. And with the skill that you've developed through your practice, which takes years and years and years, then you are able to take that vision and communicate it through your body and through earth, and you create the human experience, for instance. Mm. I love that. Yeah, it's a beautiful teaching. Um, I think, yeah, yeah Trunk Bermuche was such an amazing teacher. He was a centric, he was a character. I guess I feel the need. I mean, I know he was also controversial, and that's been talked about some on this podcast in the past, so I don't feel like we need to go into all that right now, but just that you grew up as a part of that community and obviously got a lot of good out of it. And originally Shambhala training was supposed to be a secular thing. And I think that changed later after he had died, but it was meant to be a way to have meditation that wasn't connected with the religion, at least in my understanding. And, you know, I still believe that as much as anybody else. I grew up in a time when it was, old traditional Buddhism and Shambhala training were these two separate paths that eventually became the same path. And I was also a part of that as well. Mm. But uh, it's quite obvious that meditation can be just about anything and it doesn't have to relate particularly to spirituality. However, when it comes to music, music is, is very secular, yet there's nothing about music that isn't spiritual. Mm. there's no part of music in any way that it's actually manifested, that it's created, that it's presented, that doesn't relate to some spiritual element of ourselves. Yeah. I love that you're, you're bringing that in. I think so many people, myself included, have transcendent experiences at, concerts like why do people so many people gather together to listen to live music and i think you're naming something really important yeah what is it about music that actually makes people feel elevated spiritually Mm. and that's what i really started to realize to notice when i began to engage with rhythm yeah i think you're really onto something with the rhythm and i think it's um our heart, you know, our heartbeat is a rhythm. And when we're in a large crowd of people, we're very influenced by other people's states of mind, by their emotions, and then our hearts are beating. And I think a good concert brings everyone together in this beyond, you know, words, beyond concepts, beyond our identities. It just starts happening. Um, What I noticed is that you have the beat, right? The beat is something constant. 
Mm. It's something that pulses throughout the concert, throughout the experience. And that is really what binds everyone together. Mm. Whether, whether or not they're paying attention to the melody. Not everybody connects to the melody, but everybody connects to the rhythm. Everybody connects to the beat of it. And whether you're in the audience or whether you're in the band, the beat is what binds all these minds together. And then by taking that mind of meditation, which is really about um, bringing my focus to my breath, for instance, grounding it in that way and allowing my thoughts to kind of dissolve so I can just be present. Much like the practice of shamatha meditation where you're bringing your mind into that space so that it can rest in the space between the out-breath and the in-breath and mm. get familiarized with that space, that sense of space, the beat Instead of focusing on the beat itself, I brought my attention to the space between the beat. Mm. And when I found that space, keeping time is not a problem anymore. There's no effort involved in actually feeling the pulse of the music. And from that space, the kind of limitless creativity of music just comes pouring out because you're no longer trying that you kind of open the lid of your own creative process because it's active already. It's already moving. It's meditation action. Literally hmm. there's no, there's no stillness involved. It's dancing and flowing continuously yeah yeah and that's um i mean that what you're describing now is getting you know to the heart of your book at least as i understand it this listening to the space in between and we did that together when you were in town a while ago and it and there's the sense of effortlessness that i think you're speaking to that that was so felt so good to like like kind of go from like putting a lot of effort to like keeping the beat and then paying attention to the space and it's just kind of happening. Yeah. I mean, we can try it. I was thinking we could listen to a, a little bit of a recording that I made a while ago with my friend Max Carmichael when I started actually using this method in my own performances and recordings. And uh, we can just listen to it and, and I'll, I can talk us through a little bit of the exercise. Yeah, and might uh, you know illuminate this and make it a little more clear for people. Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, people could even uh, you know clap along as they listen and and try it out. Sure. So I'll just uh, share my screen and and then I'll uh, bring it up on YouTube. Great. There aren't a lot of views on it. I don't know why, but you know, uh -huh. bagpipes. After this, it'll go viral. Thank you. 
by the bee. You can hear the bee. And then, instead of focusing on the beat itself, just bring that focus to that space between. but I'm still holding that beat, that slow beat, yet I'm able to actually play twice as fast over it to expand that space and to contract it and expand it and contract it. That's beautiful. Thanks. So that's just an example of, of when you get into that space and you start to really feel that groove. It's really all about the groove. Everything that you play, I mean, as a musician, you play the same tunes over and over and over again your whole life so that they become deeply absorbed into your bones and your muscles. Mm. And then you can just play without even thinking about it, really. And in that sense of space of groove, you can, a musician can relax. And in that relaxation, then they tune into that space of the groove and whatever they play then becomes an expression of that space. And that's what ties people into that mind and really just gets them dancing. Yeah. That was a good example too of like how the bagpipe is traditionally often played without, you know, it's as a solo performance, you know. It's definitely more of a solo instrument traditionally. Hmm. That particular 
track comes from this album called Bagpipe Baby, where it was inspired after I had discovered this method of mindfulness of rhythm. I was staying with my friend Monty McKeever, and he had just had a baby with his wife, Rebecca, a little girl named Andromeda. And I was staying with them in Brooklyn one time, and I was at the session earlier that night playing and I, I come back to their apartment and it's like midnight or something. And, and I walk in and sh she's just crying, 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 crying because Rebecca was, was out working. Um, you know, she's a doula. So she was, she was at a birth and she was just like, where's mommy? But she didn't really say that because she was only six months old. She was mm. just crying, and crying and crying. And Monty was trying everything he could to get, Andromeda to just quiet down and go to sleep. So I, the first thing I did was take out my guitar and I just started playing her some really heavy blues, which she <laughs> loved. But every time I stopped playing the guitar, then she'd be like, where's mommy? Ah! And then, so I, uh, I thought, you know, I, sh I need to play something that has a continuous sound that doesn't so she doesn't realize anything. <laughs> got my, my little bagpipes, the small pipes, which are the, the kind of bagpipes that I played in the last track. And they're so quiet that they actually could be played in the apartment at midnight. And mm. so I started playing for this little girl and she just got hypnotized by the drone sound of it, particularly, and by the, the constant sense of, of melody but that I was actually playing it with yeah. a sense of rhythm. She started to really kind of go back and forth with her yeah. head. She started and rocking. Yeah. She started rocking. And then after about 20 minutes of just playing continuously, she was falling asleep. And then, oh. and then she fell That's... asleep. And I put her, I put a baby to bed with the bagpipes. <laughs> That's a beautiful story and surprising. <laughs> that, um, that made me, I love thinking about that rocking motion. You know, babies do that to soothe themselves, to calm themselves down. And I've actually done that sometimes with clients in therapy when, if they have trauma in your body and you find a way to like, just gently move from side to side, it can help balance your nervous system and, and help you move through something. Um, and there's been a lot of research on that, like bilateral stimulation, like going, like squeezing a ball in one hand and then the other, finding a kind of rhythm, engaging the different sides of your body. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of helps when you're uh, going through something and when you're, you know, really stressed and anxious, you know, people just kind of, they rock back and forth just to like sort it out, you know? It, yeah. It's right. some kind of really primordial primitive instinct that everybody yeah. has. And then you could see when someone gets really angry or agitated, you know, they're shaking more. They're, it's real fast. There's yeah. a speed. Yeah. That's, yeah. And maybe that's kind of what rock is. You know, it's rocking the baby, the inner baby. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah. Which is why it's so compelling and so addictive to just be rocked. That's why people go to rock concerts to get one rocked. of the yeah one of my all time favorite movies is School of Rock, and he's like explaining to the kids like what is rock. 
<laughs> so yeah, you were um, in New York City and learning and playing in these like bars and clubs with this group of people. What was the name of that group? It was like a like Celtic music. Well, the the Irish musician community in New York is really quite big, and they play in several different bars. We formed a Scottish session in Brooklyn at a bar called Iona. So we called ourselves the Iona session or the Iona Scottish session. And we played there every Monday night. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that place in 2012. And the last time I played there was uh, in February of 2020. Oh, wow. I really hope it comes back to life. I really hope coronavirus doesn't end these these really cool gatherings that were happening, these traditions, you know, places like that. It all, it all depends on the bankers and the landlords and all that, though. That's a different subject. We won't talk about that right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's so cool that you were in New York and Brooklyn and having this, this community, and then you took off on this road trip across the country. And you were... Do you want to talk about that a little bit? That's it's an amazing story. Well, you mean the beginning of it? In 2016? I don't know. I don't know all the details. I just remember you telling me how you traveled across the country and you had different experiences and you were kind of searching for something. And that's when you had this realization around rhythm. Mm -hmm. Well, I went to uh, a music festival in Scranton, Pennsylvania called The Peach that summer. Mm -hmm. And I was on tour with the group Nature, which is a, a theatrical performance about the life and friendship of Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson and the, the Transcendentalists. And I was a musician for that uh, theatrical ensemble. We did an outdoor performance where we brought the, the audience into an experience of the magic of nature through walking them through a park and including them in a comedy bromance. But um, it was a break from that tour, particularly, and I had decided that I wanted to leave New York at that point because I just had had it. That place is mm. too much, too crazy. <laughs> of course, I'm hopelessly addicted to it, and I have such a, an intense love-hate relationship with that place. Mm. I do love the city so much, yet it can just wear you down. I mean, that place can take years off your life, just the amount mm. of... Uh, overstimulation and stress that can be brought on by living there. So I decided to buy a car and drive around and become a vagabond, you know, engage music in a different way. I had lived in New York for about uh, five years at that point, and um, and I had really uh, learned a lot while I was there. I, I completely transformed myself. And I just started driving and I hmm. was open to whatever came to me and whatever experience I, I would have. And there it's were like, all these kind of like a beat beat poet lifestyle. Yeah. And there were all hmm. these places and things that I had heard about that I wanted to see. And hmm. so I went I went to this music festival in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where I, I saw uh, the Lennon Claypool delirium, Les Claypool and Sean Lennon forming a super band you know, Les Claypool of Primus. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, John Lennon's son, who is a great 
musician in his own right. And they played this really amazing performance where I, I saw with the power of rock and roll, they invoked a thunderstorm that just crashed down on us right as their set ended. <laughs> and, and it was just like this monumental spiritual thing. I was like completely blown away by the power of it. That's beautiful. And, yeah. I actually have a funny, real quick, Les Claypool story. When I first moved to Boulder, Colorado, I won free tickets to see him at the Fox. Cool. And I went, yeah, I went and it was awesome. And he was rocking out and I um, actually passed out. It was like really embarrassing. And I got carried out and I was given water and I realized I was just completely dehydrated. I wasn't used to the elevation. I hadn't been drinking enough water, but I, I just imagined everyone like thinking that I was like on drugs or something, but it was really just, I think, dehydration. <laughs> that's a classic story. Right? So that's my, that's my Les Claypool story. <laughs> and, um, and then I went down to uh, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where I had heard that there were these recording studios that were really legendary and there was some kind of magic in the air and that there's this kind of um, uh, river spirit that sings to the musicians. It's kind of an enchanted place. And, and I went down there and I, I, I actually met one of the owners of the recordings of one of the recording studios, Cypress Moon, and she let me record there with my own equipment. And where, that, where is that? It's in uh, Sheffield, Alabama. Muscle Shoals. And, um, and then I was hanging out by the river and I was just meditating. I was like, maybe if I meditate, I can hear the singing river goddess. And I was just meditating out there and this dog showed up without a collar, still has his balls. And this dog shows up and just starts meditating with me. And we have this instant rapport, me and this dog. So... <laughs> We sit there for about another half hour, and then I get up to get an instrument out of my car. You know, maybe if I start composing a melody, you know, this river goddess might, might start singing to me. So I grab my recorder, my little uh, classical recorder, out of my car, and I start playing it. And what does the dog do? The dog starts singing <laughs> right next to the river there. And the dog and I have a jam session for about 10 minutes. That was really crazy. And then, um, you know, I, uh, I kept traveling across the country and I was playing music wherever I went as a way to uh, earn a little money. But I was going to go to Los Angeles, but instead I ended up going to San Francisco. And when I went to San Francisco, I went directly to the Haight-Ashbury because, you know, I didn't really know anything about San Francisco or, or anything that was going on there. But I, ha I did know that that was kind of a uh, pilgrimage place for a lot of hippies, and a lot of musicians. And being a hippie musician myself, I went there and um, I, uh, I went there on Labor Day weekend and on Labor Day, I went to the Conservatory of Flowers in Golden Gate Park, which is really mm. only a couple blocks away from the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood, that kind of uh, commercial strip there. And, and it was there that I discovered this jam session of these uh, 
Puerto Ricans and they were playing this traditional cumbia rumba style music with congas and it was just sick it was just so deep and dark and mm. profound and i thought these guys just like playing gathering all this incredible energy and uh, there was one of them this this old guy who had red tinted sunglasses red tinted glasses and he looks up at me and he asks oh you play music and i'm like yeah and he's like, well, come on, you know, join us. And so I get down there and I grab one of the drums. And instead of really playing my thing on top of it, I really listened to what they were doing. I really started mm -hmm. to listen to the way that they were playing and actually, you know, mimicking their techniques and, and their particular style and really starting to blend with them. And as that was happening, uh, the guy wearing the red tinted glasses started to sing these traditional songs. And I got this weird feeling that we started to be orbited. We were being orbited by spirits or something. Hmm. And I don't know what happened next, but it felt like something actually entered my body and started radiating a warmth from my heart. And then the rhythm locked into place and couldn't come undone. And I, I discovered mm. a profound sense of rhythm. And then, lo and behold, I started to understand and appreciate the Grateful Dead. <laughs> I had not, yeah. I didn't understand it before this all happened. And then it was like, well, of course, they're one of the greatest bands of all time. I mean, just like listen to the power of that rhythm. Yeah, I love the Grateful Dead. It's funny that, of course, in San Francisco that would happen. Because <laughs> yeah, that's where they were. It happened right, right. At the, right at the place. That's a beautiful story. Um, the Grateful Dead are interesting in that they don't like have, you know, a real big drum beat behind them often, but there is certainly rhythm and, and a danceability. It's uh, so different than like modern, you know, dance music or electronic music, but. Well, they do actually. The drum beat behind them, they have two drummers that are playing like contra. Yeah. Like one's playing a six eight rhythm and one's playing a four four rhythm and they're just perfectly blending together to actually take the lid off your brain and make you go, wow. <laughs> you know, if you really yeah. listen. Beautiful. Pretty incredible. Talk about timeless music and like it's deep roots of like American folk music and traditional music and yeah. And and then so I, I had this um I had this kind of experience that I brought back with me to uh New York months later. Of course, a few months later I also had an experience of profound loss when my car was broken into and they stole all my instruments and everything. Mm. And so uh, there was this tremendous sense of absolute devastation and heartbreak. And that was also on your road trip? That was also on the road trip. And, and it was, uh, it, you know, it was like that. It was like losing everything. And oh, that... Well, you had this amazing, you had this transcendent experience with the rhythm and then you lost everything physically, like not long after. Yeah. So, yeah like the cost or something, the price one pays for some kind of 
realization thing. But um, that definitely brought a lot of energy into my life because after that point, um, people from all over the world, my friends from many years, some who I haven't seen in many years, they all came out of the woodwork and they all helped me. And I Mm. realized a lot about life, a lot about what is really valuable in life and what is really important. And, it, you know, it, it, it definitely had a, a very um, long-lasting, changing effect on me. But I, I brought that energy back to New York. My friend lent me a set of bagpipes that I could play until I got myself back on my feet. And um, when I got back to New York and I started playing with all these traditional Scottish and Irish bands again, and really leaning into traditional folk music with this appreciation of rhythm, I started to discover the depth of folk music and how profound it is and how it's, it's so valuable and timeless and how, you know, even centuries in the future, when we're colonizing other planets and other star systems, people are still going to be playing that music because it really goes to a deep place. And it's very much about who we are as human beings. It goes into our ancestry. It, it reveals to us who we are and where we come from. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. I think there's truth to that. I think, and I think the music keeps coming back, you know, in new ways. Like I've heard electronic music and I know you have a song with like some electronic music elements that that in- includes like folk music and traditional music and I guess it's called often called like world world music like all these yeah. genres kind of and it's not like they're blended together into like a soup it's like very distinct elements but maybe with an electronic beat or other elements brought into um yeah I mean that uh, particular track was recorded after I had already been through this big world music trip and I was trying to bring the bagpipes into all kinds of different genres. But I think in that particular recording, we really, uh, we took it to this other level where we didn't expect. Um, What I realized about uh, playing this music particularly is that uh, this particular method of mindful rhythm or mindfulness of rhythm it uh you don't need to be a musician necessarily to practice it you can just listen to music or you can be a dj and where you're actually playing generated beats you can still practice this method just by listening to that space between the beat instead of playing from that space where you bring your Mm. mind into that's kind of the the active training but also as a musician playing with electronic musicians or even just playing with a metronome, you can still practice it. And so why don't we take a look at that track? Cause uh, that's, that's an excellent example of the kinds of things that you can do um, as a musician while playing with uh, other music. So I'll just uh, share this screen again here all.
like I like that that kind of blending of genres and I mean, speaking about rhythm, what do you feel about this electronic music? It's kind of, I feel like it's kind of taken over the world. Um, and rhythm is so central to that, but it, it's being created by a, a machine, right? A computer rather than a human. It's, it's almost like this molding between the living, the organic and inorganic. Yeah, and, and you know, with AI, they're, you know, creating melodies out of artificial intelligence and things like that. You know, um, Jeez, I don't even know if I have a comment on that, particularly. Yeah, uh, I think I think it's like, I wonder if it's it's part of our evolution, this like molding of man and machine, and um, yeah. or devolution. I mean, it's just or devolution. Kind of take it. Kind of takes a lot of the effort and the genius out of it. Yet, um, people they uh, in order to actually create the programs that are that perform electronic music it requires a kind of human brilliance and design that even i don't possess you know it's right. really really amazing the kind of nerds that we owe so much to that have created all these incredible uh magical ways to make and record music that we never had before you know right yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a human that's behind that's designs all these machines, like you just said. So it's not it's not like it's an inhuman thing. Like we tend to think about it that way sometimes. But... Yeah. I don't I know. Mean... I think I think that um like our heart is beating all the time and there's a rhythm there and we're not always aware of it. And I think with electronic music, it's like because it can go on for so long, you know, it's so exact, it kind of I don't know, kind of seems similar in some way. <laughs> The difference, I think, is that when a, a person or a band uh, performs a song that has that, that rhythmic element that really brings everybody in, they actually start to um, have a mind meld with everybody. Mm. And everybody in the audience actually melds their minds with theirs. And they begin to display what's really in their heart. I don't know if this is actually something that comes from EDM as well, or electronic music, because uh, it's not actively being displayed as this kind of like enlightenment. That's really kind of what I'm saying it is, is that if a musician is really in that zone, he begins to display this kind of aura that just consumes everybody around him and, and they all begin to feel this joy in their hearts. Whereas dance music, it does give somebody, it does give everybody this kind of thing to dance to, yet it's still being generated by a machine. Yeah, well, I guess I have a different take on it. Um, but I think there's a big difference between an electronic music producer who's creating it themselves versus like a DJ who's just playing music that they love. I mean, that that's great too, but I've yeah. definitely been in, in concerts and venues where everyone is brought together and it's, it's one man and a laptop, you know, but how many hours went into creating that performance? And um, yeah. And yeah. If, if the laptop, you know, if if the man in the laptop actually created the music or if they're just kind of borrowing 
what somebody else created, or they're just kind of doing what the computer came up with. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I don't mean to knock electronic music because there's a lot of electronic music that I really love and a lot of electronic artists that I really love. However, um, that kind of effort that goes into actually getting the flow of the rhythm, when that effort isn't there, it's a different experience. Mm. There's a different magic going on when that kind of a living quality is sort of removed from actually generating that flow state. That right. And I think it's that state of flow that musicians can communicate that feels so good that helps people like lose them, lose themselves in the music. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, as I mentioned earlier uh, with the um, philosophy of the trikaya, it's that flow state when a musician really begins to demonstrate the profundity of what in Buddhism we call this Fabhavakakaya, which is the Dharmakaya, which is the limitless expansive space of the mind. Hmm. The Nirmanakaya, which is how that space actually begins to form energetically into something that can be communicated which is the nirmanakaya, which is something that actually takes form. Now, this is something that a person can spend a lot of time contemplating. Yet, when, and you can also see how it, it is demonstrated in nature. Yet, a musician, when they're into that state of flow, you can really feel the movement of it going through all these various states of being. And Dharmakaya is this limitless reservoir of energy that uh, everyone possesses. And then the Nirmanakaya is actually that vision of the song, like pouring through the, from the creative imagination and pouring through the body. And the Nirmanakaya is that pouring through the body and playing on the instrument and actually creating it and displaying it into uh, our, you know, consensual reality mm. yeah that kind of activity is happening all at once and that is why music is so powerful and that is why it's so important that we have live music mm. that's why live music is one of the one of the fundamental aspects of the artistic world yeah and it's something that we're being forced to do without for the most part with um, coronavirus, which is a shame. But yeah, yeah, well, well, yeah. Gotta, gotta be safe. Gotta be safe. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the day when we can have live music again, when we can gather again. I think it's deeply healing. I think there's profound reasons why people gather that way. It's not just random. It's not just, you know, and it's not just hedonism either. I mean, it's having seen so many people come together in peace you know for celebration i think that's profoundly human and profoundly powerful and it's something that that we really need in our society um but yeah this this discussion of the three kayas is you know it's that's in buddhist philosophy so it's it's kind of like i think those are sanskrit terms but what you're referring to is it's like this creative process it's a way of describing reality right so it doesn't have to be that 
complex. It's it could it's actually you know the word simplicity gets used a lot in those teachings too. Yeah, it's what Chogyam Trungpa was talking about when he was talking about joining heaven, earth, and mm. principle. You know, it's yeah. the same thing. that vision Maybe. into like into resource and technique and then becoming something that joins heaven and earth together creates something that displays enlightenment right well maybe when you were talking it made me think about just you have a vision you see something and then you you work and you put the work and you create it and it takes some form and it, the final outcome you know it's not going to be ex maybe exactly like what you imagined but it's something else and that's beautiful too <laughs> But this, this like space, so then this, this energy, this idea, this thought, this inspiration, and this movement, and this creation, it's maybe one way to kind of approach that. Well, you, you can go to a museum and you can see some art, and that's made, you know, in the same way. There's nothing particularly secret or esoteric about it. But when you see that art, that art can actually change your life. Mm. It can change your perspective. It can make you feel something you didn't expect. It can make you think about time and space and nature and yourself. You know, yeah, yeah. and it stays there. It doesn't change, you know, it's there for as long as it exists. And it can have an effect on every single person that encounters it in a different way. Yeah. I wonder too, like how especially with older art, like so many people have seen it over the centuries and that has its own effect on, on your experience of it and on what it is. And you know, some of these images that are so famous, it's almost hard to see. Like I remember going, I got to see, I got to go to Paris and see the Mona Lisa. But there was like this mob of people in front of it. And there are, it's like all these amazing artworks like down the hallway where like no one is, but this one in particular for whatever reason, so it was, you know, actually difficult to like physically see it. And then I was, I remember thinking like, even when I can look at it, it's like, because it's so famous, it's kind of hard to see through all the layers, you know, like, what is it about, what am I looking at? Just some woman, <laughs> but what? something about her, something about her face captures, captures us. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it. Um, but, uh, when I began to understand this, I realized that the most powerful people in the world are the people that control art, the people that control media. Because with art, you can control the way that people think. You can, can, you can have a command over the way that um, media influences people. And this is like very, it becomes very deep. And as a musician, it's sort of my responsibility to uh, demonstrate the music in a way that actually makes people uplift themselves, mm. to feel good or to at least feel something genuine about themselves. That's really what uh, folk music is all about, particularly. Yeah, there's a certain responsibility really there. You're impacting people and it seems to me like a lot of traditional music, like the ballads, like uh, and blues music, it'd be very sad, but it's a way of feeling that emotion and, and there's something healing about it too at the same time. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing 
more real about ourselves than our connecting with that heart of sadness. You know, that's mm. right there. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Well, it's been uh, it's been great having you on the podcast, Andrew. And it's been great being here, Julian. It's what a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And is your, your book's called Mindful Rhythm, right? Is that the title you're going to go with? Well, you know, I'm still working on it. Still working on that? Yeah. But uh, it's, a, it's a technique that I hope that I can start helping teach people. And it's really not just for bagpipers. It's for everybody. Everybody mm-hmm. and anybody can practice this. Yeah, and I got to try out some of the exercises, and they're great. So, Thanks. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess it's a good time uh, to to say see you later, and um, I guess I'll be back in Colorado soon. But uh, yeah, let me let me know. Yeah, this yeah. Thanks for having me, Julian. Thank you.